Amen. Well, if you've got a Bible, if you want to turn to Mark chapter 15, if you don't have one, there's one on a chair around you. If you don't have one at all, you're welcome to keep that. Um, There are also a lot of good apps out there, so feel free to get there on your device if you'd like to. Uh, We've been in the book of Mark as a church for 38 weeks now, um, and then we've got two more in the book of Mark after this week. Then the plan is we're going to do a five-week series that we're calling Rhythms, and that's just going to be five different uh, ways that we're supposed to be living as Christians in response to the grace of Christ. And then in the fall, we'll be jumping into the book of Ecclesiastes, um, and we're going to be spending about 12 weeks there, which might be depressing, but um, it's got some some hope at the end of it, some exciting stuff coming. It's actually one of my favorite books of the Bible, and it's going to be a great time uh, to to be studying through that book in the fall, so feel free to start reading ahead. Uh, Also, it is so good to be in this place where we can say every week we've got room for you to invite friends. For a while, we were kind of holding back, like, yeah, bring some friends, but not too many, and um, now there is plenty of room, and so feel free to bring them. We actually have a lot more chairs in this. There's a lot more space. We'll be putting some out. Uh, Also, for those of you who walked all the way up the stairs and you weren't sure you were going to make it, um, there are elevators. There are two elevators. One's out of order uh, with no hope in sight. The other one works fine, and so um, you're welcome to use the elevator in the lobby and come straight up to the fourth floor. Don't, don't worry about that. Uh, for those of you who are going to keep coming up the stairs, I'm going to talk to the elders about getting defibrillators and stuff on site. And so, um, so we're, we're thankful that you're making the effort to make it up here. Um, but as we look at Mark 15 and 16, we really have the reason that we want to invite people here. We have the reason that we exist as a church, the reason for our mission, the reason for Christianity. You know, there are other religions out there that have ethical systems and moral codes. And sometimes the moral codes in other religions and the ethical systems, they resemble some of the moral code that goes with Christianity. And so so the Ten Commandments aren't necessarily altogether different from what we see in other religions. You know, other religions have concepts of the afterlife. They have some concepts of God. And sometimes they overlap and they look a lot like Christianity. But what Christianity and only Christianity has is the story that we'll see in Mark 15 and 16 here. That, That God became a man that he lived among us, he lived a perfect life that none of us could have lived. He died on the cross, he was buried, and he rose again so that we can turn from sin and unbelief and trust in him to have everlasting life. And no other religion says that. No other religion tells that story. Christianity stands out as unique in all the world as the one that holds out Jesus Christ as the Savior. And as you read through the Bible and you see the message that was on the tongue of the early church as they went out and started telling people about Jesus, their core message was not, hey, we found this new moral system, and if you follow this moral system, you'll find that it's better than all the other ones. You know, their core message wasn't, there's this Jesus guy, and he can inspire you, and so go live, live a moral life. Their core message that they just keep coming back to over and over and over again is a dead guy got up. <laughs> Jesus Christ, who was God, became a man, was buried. He was in the tomb, but then he got up. And he's walking around. He's alive today. And they believed that message so much that it changed them, that the Spirit of God came into their hearts, changed their lives, so it made them entirely different people. And the promise of the Scripture is that if we'll believe the message that they believed, it'll change us too. And so this is our core. Our core as Christians is that God became a man, that he died, he was buried, he rose again. And if that's true, then that means the world to us. It means everything changes. If that's not true, then we don't have any reason for existing at all. You know, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we shouldn't be here worshiping. In fact, the Bible says that. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says, if the dead aren't raised, let's just eat, drink, and be merry. There is a better life to live than the Christian life if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. What you should do, if Jesus didn't rise, is is please don't be so devoted to church. (laughs) Please don't be here. This is a terrible hobby. 
if, um, if church is just a hobby for you, you choose hobbies poorly. Um, there, there are better. Did you see the weather today? Um, get a boat. Like that, that's the place to go. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, eat, drink, and be married. There's an easier life. Take the 10%, 20%, whatever your income, whatever percentage you're giving, take that and invest in a boat and in a golf club membership. Like do that because that's the way to live if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. But if he rose, and you know that we believe that he did, then we worship him, we give ourselves to him, and we hold nothing back in our loyalty, our allegiance to Jesus, and in following him. If he rose, that should radically change our lives. If he didn't, then we shouldn't even try, and we shouldn't try to do the Christianity as a hobby game because it just doesn't work. It's just not a good hobby. And as Christians, we believe in the resurrection. We have the same message that the early Christians had, that a dead guy got up, and if you'll believe in him, it'll absolutely change everything. It'll absolutely change your life. And this is why we exist as a church. This is what our mission is to Rochester, that sinners, even sinners as bad as me, can turn from their sin, can turn from their unbelief, and can trust in the cross of Jesus Christ to pay for all their sin, because he's the one who conquered the grave, and he can conquer their sin. They can be forgiven we can have a right relationship with God, and we can have everlasting life. And so that's our core message. That's the heart of what we believe and proclaim. And without that, we have no reason for existing as a church. We really have no reason for being Christians. Let's just eat, drink, and be merry. But if that's true, then the best place and the place with ultimate joy is living like that's true in worship and abandon. So Mark chapter 15, verse 37, kind of going back a little bit to the cross. It says, And Jesus uttered a loud cry, and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, Since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud And taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. So Jesus has died. Uh, His body's been wrapped in a linen shroud. And Joseph of Arimathea, who was a rich man, oversaw the procession of, of having him buried. And so they buried him in what would have looked something like a mausoleum carved into the side of a hill. And it was in a garden. So it was kind of this garden tomb scene buried with the rich like the the Old Testament had said he would be. And if you put together the accounts of the Gospels, we see that there were also Roman soldiers who were involved. And they came, and because it was so heavy, they rolled this stone in front of the mouth of the tomb. And then they sealed it with a government seal. And you couldn't open that tomb or break that seal upon pain of death. And so Jesus is buried, and he's buried permanently. There are a couple of ladies named Mary who see where he's buried, um, and and we know what happens next, but they didn't know what was coming. I mean, Jesus had taught that he was going to rise from the dead over and over and over again. Mark very rarely repeats things, but he keeps repeating Jesus' teaching, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise from the dead. But still, no matter how many times Jesus said it, they just didn't get it. 
It just kept bouncing off because they had a completely different conception of what would happen in the resurrection. The Jews were divided over the issue, but many of them believed that there would be a resurrection. They believed that there was coming a day someday when all the righteous would rise, when God would allow his people to be dominant on the earth, and those who have died would rise again. So many of the Jews believed there would be a resurrection, but they didn't have a category for one guy rising from the dead and everybody else staying in the tombs. The Greeks definitely didn't think that rising from the dead would be any kind of good afterlife. Um, They thought that the physical body was a bad thing, and because it was a bad thing, there's no way that you would rise again in a physical body. You know, maybe Jesus would rise spiritually, but you could go in there and still see his dead body, and his spirit would be up and alive and working somewhere, but they had no category for a literal, physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. So these women, they, they were faithful to Jesus and loyal to Jesus, but their theology was still messed up. They still didn't know that he was going to rise from the dead. And so they go to the tomb, not with any expectation that they're going to see Jesus walking around. And we know that because of what we see next. Mark 16, verse 1, it says, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought son had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? So they come, and they're bringing the spices that you would use to anoint a dead body. So that's what they're expecting to find. Jesus had taught them that he would rise from the dead, but they didn't get it. So they're expecting they'll go to the tomb. They're hoping that there will be somebody there so that that stone can get rolled away because there's no way they'll be able to roll it away themselves. They're talking about that as they go. They're thinking of how they're going to get in to anoint the dead body of Jesus. And then they look up, and they see something totally unexpected. Verse 4. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. So they get to the tomb, and the stone's already, already rolled away, and they can see from a distance that his body is not there. So they run up and they run to to peek in the tomb and see what's going on. And so this is spooky already. I mean, tombs are spooky. Uh, Even if your view of the the afterlife is totally Christian, they're still scary places. Um, Like for me, I I don't think there's any such thing as ghosts. I don't think that there are three floors on the elevator of the afterlife. You know, heaven and hell and kind of this in-between haunting everything. That's not what the Bible teaches. I mean, it teaches that you're absent from the body and present with the Lord if you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian, you go to hell. I believe there are those two floors in the afterlife and no in-between. So I don't believe in ghosts or spirits kind of roaming around the world or anything like that. But graveyards in low light are still spooky. Um, I, I took uh, my daughter Lydia to Mount Hope Cemetery a couple of years back at the time. She was just fascinated with cemeteries for some reason. And so we, we went there and we were walking. It was nearing dusk and the light was getting lower. And we walked around a uh, mausoleum and there was a guy sitting there that I hadn't seen there at all. And he was sitting with his back against the mausoleum. He was writing in a journal um, and totally innocently, he said, how you doing? And I jumped about five feet. <laughs> and I know that place isn't haunted. I'm not worried about spirits around there, but still spooky. And so these women go, they go into the, to, to where the tomb is. So it's already a spooky experience. And then when they first get there, they recognize that the stone has rolled away. And so now it's starting to look like maybe this is a crime scene because the body of Jesus isn't there. They're thinking that maybe some grave robbers have come and stolen his body away. So that's what they're thinking. They run up to the tomb, and then when they poke their head in there, there's a guy there. And he says, 
How you doing? <laughs> but, but not only is it a guy, Scripture says he was an angel. The Gospel of Matthew says his appearance was like lightning. Uh, Matthew says there were two of them. So she leans in. She's talking to this one guy. This is already scary. He looks to her left. There's another one there. So I'm sure she's jumping. She's scared. And the first thing that that guy says is, now calm down. <laughs> um, don't be alarmed. This isn't what you think has gone on here. I mean, if you've ever pulled into your driveway and the window's broken, and so it's clear that your house is a crime scene, something's been robbed, you know that wave of fear that comes over you. You're immediately thinking, is this guy still here? Am I going to walk in the house and come around the corner and he's going to be right there? Are we safe? Are we in danger? What's going on? So they're already in a spooky graveyard. Then they come up and they get to the tomb and it's clear that there's been a robbery to them. It looks like the body's been stolen. So fear's already pretty high. They poke their heads in the tomb. There's somebody there. He's glowing. And he says, don't be alarmed. So this is what goes on on this, on this resurrection morning. But what becomes really apparent to them very quickly is this wasn't a grave robbery. The Gospel of John actually says that he points them to the linen cloths that, um, that Jesus had been wearing, his grave clothes, and they were neatly folded, which is not how crime scenes work. I mean, I haven't done that much grave robbing in my day, but um, it seems that if you're going to go somewhere and steal a body, you're not going to clean up after yourself. You're not going to take the time, if you're there, to get in and get this body and get out. You're not going to take the time to unwrap the body and then neatly fold the laundry and put it on the shelf so that you can leave. Thieves and robbers usually aren't that tidy. And you pull into your house and the window's broken and you go inside and you recognize that your safe is gone, someone's broken in, they've stolen something. You probably don't say, and I think he shampooed the carpet. <laughs> and, and the laundry's all done. <laughs> like, and they ironed. Like Thieves don't do that. They, they come in, they steal what they're going to steal, and they get out. And so these women come to the tomb and they're thinking, the body's been stolen. That's the only thing that could have happened because the body's not there. They look in there. There are guys there. They say, don't be alarmed. And they point him to the folded linens and they say, he rose. This isn't a body being stolen. This is Jesus rising from the dead. So that's good news, but fear, all kinds of emotions are sweeping over these women. And then the angel says something shocking. Look at verse 7. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So this angel says to Mary Magdalene, I want you to be the first witness of the resurrection. I want you to go and tell these disciples that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. So what's so shocking about that? Well, in their day, sexism was rampant. They, they were in a culture that had not yet been influenced by the gospel. In any culture where the gospel goes and starts influencing people and influencing things, it always raises the role and the view of women in that culture. Um, as Christians, we're taught that men and women are morally equal. We're taught that men are not better than women, but we are taught that by the scriptures. Now, scriptures do teach that there are distinct roles and some distinct spheres, but it's very, very clear that men are not more reliable than women. They're not morally superior to women. And we know that, and we almost take that for granted. But in their culture, that was not taken for granted. In fact, women were treated very wrongly, almost as silly people, where their testimony was not admissible in a court of law. So if they were to come and give some kind of testimony, their disrespect for women ran so deep that everybody would say, well, why would we listen to what a woman has to say? It was that bad. You know, so for the first Christians to hear this story that, that women were the first ones to see Jesus risen from the dead wouldn't have given that story any credibility at all. It would be like us saying the first ones to the tomb were toddlers and they told us all about it, so we believe it. Um, that, that's wrongly how they thought. I mean, my son Hudson, he's a toddler, and he's, he's a lot of fun to be around, 
but I wouldn't want him to necessarily be the expert witness for anything in court. Um, he, he doesn't really get how the world works yet. A couple weeks ago, we're sitting at dinner, and um, there was blue cheese, I think we're having pizza, dipped in blue cheese, and, uh, and he goes, we shouldn't eat yellow blue cheese. And I said, words to live by. It's, uh, yeah, we, we shouldn't eat yellow blue cheese. Um, who eats yellow blue cheese, Hudson? And he said, bad guys. <laughs> I said, okay, where, where do these bad guys eat yellow blue cheese? And he said, in hell. <laughs> so... So we're messing our kids up too. We're with you in this, okay? We're, we're right there. And so, so that's what, he's not going to be the guy who's, who's going to be a witness to the resurrection. We're not going to say, oh no, we know he rose from the dead. Hudson told us. I mean, he's a toddler. And they were so warped in their culture that that's what it would have been like to hear, well, some women went to the tomb and said that Jesus rose from the dead. So why in the world would these gospel writers, if they're trying to run a PR campaign for Jesus and tell everybody that Jesus really did rise from the dead, why would they tell this story that doesn't lend the resurrection any kind of credibility? And the reason is because it really happened this way. Now, this, this is important. These gospel writers, they weren't making this story up. If they were trying to make up a story so that they could prove to everybody that this happened and it's totally reliable, then the story probably would have been four different men with four different backgrounds who had no previous knowledge of Jesus, all saw him crucified, they all went to the place where they knew he was buried, and when they got there, all four of them, different religions, different races, different ways of thinking, they all said the same thing. The angel said that he rose from the dead, they saw the folded grave clothes. That would have been a more airtight case. But the gospel writers weren't trying to spin things. They weren't trying to make things sound better than they were. They weren't trying to lend more credibility to the story than it might have on its own. So they told the story exactly like it is. Their goal was not to be the PR men, but to tell the truth. A lot of people would say, we should dismiss Christianity because it's basically just one more legend. You know, we read these legends about Zeus and Thor, and, and these are these great stories, but we've dismissed all of them. But for some reason, Christianity is this one legend that we've decided to hang on to. And for some reason, we act like this one is true, and we say it's blasphemous to say that Jesus didn't exist, but every day we're saying the Thor didn't exist, and every day we're saying Zeus doesn't exist, so why don't we just go one God farther and put Jesus into that same category? Well, if you read old legends, and then you read the gospel accounts, you see that these gospel accounts don't read like legends. They read like history. They read like people were trying to tell the story and tell it exactly like it happened without trying to varnish it, spin it, or make anything up. In fact, we'll keep going here. I'll show you this again. In verse 8, it says, And they went out and they fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew, he says the same thing happened. They ran out from the tomb, and then he tells this part of the story in Matthew 28 that Mark will confirm in a second. Matthew 28, verse 8, it says, So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and joy, and they ran to tell the disciples, and behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Now, again, if you're going to make up a story, if you're going to make up a legend of the God-man who rose from the dead, he's just conquered sin and death and Satan, he was crucified and he rose again, you might come up with a better speech than this. Like, you might come up with thunder and lightning and this dramatic scene where Jesus reveals that he's risen from the dead, but instead he uses this really informal term, an informal greeting, kind of like, hi, or what's up? Jesus comes and says, greetings. Well, why would they make those the words that Jesus said? Because that's what he said. 
Because they're writing down the story as it happened. They're not trying to spin things to make the story sound better than it was or more dramatic than it was. They tell the story just like it is. And by the way, if that's how God tells the story of Jesus without any spin or varnish or exaggeration, we should feel comfortable telling the story of the way that Jesus worked in our lives without spinning it, varnishing it, or exaggerating it. And some of you may have been in some circles where it's important to have like a really dramatic Christian testimony, where, where the best testimonies of how Jesus saved us are the stories of how, man, I was strung out on heroin, and then Jesus came, and I believed in his gospel, and he saved me, he freed me from that, and I've never been tempted again. Now, he does that. There are real stories like that. I know people who will say, that's what happened to me, that's where I was. He legitimately does that, but sometimes we feel a temptation, if our story's a little more boring, to say, well, it doesn't really matter. I want to kind of go with a more dramatic story, and we spin it a little bit and sound it like, make it sound like it's more than it was. We love the stories of the hardened atheist who was preaching atheism and and people were listening and believing and he was winning over his students and then Jesus came and saved him and that changed everything in his mind and now he believes in Jesus and doesn't have a doubt anymore. That definitely happens. Uh, Jesus can make the, the biggest skeptic believe. He can change the heart that's most hard against him to make that person believe. But sometimes if our stories are more boring, we think that they don't matter or we think we have to lie to make them sound a little bit better. So if your story is, I was raised in a Christian home. I was taught to believe in Jesus from the time I was a little kid. I believed very young. You know, the worst thing I ever did in my life was I didn't memorize my verse for Awana. Um, if you don't know what Awana is, it's cool. It, it involves vests. But um, so if that's your story, if, if the worst story that you have to tell was that time, sometimes there's this temptation to say, well, the message isn't going to be powerful through me. But when we look at how God tells the story, he tells it exactly like it happened, even if he could have told it in a better way. So let's go out and tell the stories like they really happened to us. And let's recognize that as Christians, we're called to be truth tellers. And either way, the heart of our message is not what happened in my life, although what happened in my life is real and significant. The heart of our message is a dead guy got up. Jesus rose from the dead. That's the heart of Christianity. That's where the power is. That's what the real story that we want to be telling everybody is. And that story is powerful whether we have anything to contribute to it or not. Uh, Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So the gospel, the message of Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection to save sinners is the power to save people, and it doesn't need our help to have power. It'd be kind of like if you were to go to Niagara Falls and you stand at that observation point where you're right over the water and you just are a witness to this massive power and this majesty and just all the power you see of that water rushing over there. And you say, you know, Niagara Falls is pretty impressive, but you know what it needs? And you have your little Dixie cup full of water and you throw it in and you say, now that's a powerful river. Um, I, I just added a lot to that. Now that river looks like a big deal because of me. That's, we, we would laugh at that, but sometimes we do the same thing with the gospel. We say the gospel is powerful, but what it really needs is for me to varnish things, exaggerate things, spin things. It doesn't. The gospel doesn't need our power. You know, it doesn't need our abilities. 
Uh, God's given us abilities and we should use them for the spread of the gospel. But a lot of us, we look at ourselves and we say, I've got these inadequacies. I've got these insecurities. I can't speak well. I'm not quick on my feet. I'm not a leader. I'm not like an attractive personality. I'm a big time introvert. We look at ourselves and we see all these weaknesses and we say, because of that, I couldn't really be a person who spreads the gospel or tells people about Jesus. It won't be powerful in me to change anybody's life. But the power's in the river, not in our Dixie cup. The power is in the gospel. It's not in me. It doesn't need my abilities. It also doesn't need my cool. You know, sometimes we look at ourselves and they say, man, I see all these cool people, and, and they have a following. They bring all these people to know Jesus, and there's nothing cool about me. Um, I, I just feel like if I could dress the right way or, or listen to the right bands, then I'd be cool enough, and I'd be able to, to lead people to Jesus too. But the gospel is powerful. So whether the band that you listen to is some obscure band that only you and your three hipster friends know about and and you're that cool, or whether the band you listen to won American Idol, so you're the other side of the spectrum, wherever you are, the gospel doesn't need our power. It doesn't need our cool. It doesn't need our abilities. It doesn't need our strengths. God wants us to go out and proclaim his word and trust that there's power in it. It has its own power and it's not dependent on us. He's called us to to recognize that the gospel is like a lion in a cage. And our job is to open the cage and let the lion out. But then the lion can do its job of being a lion. It can roar, it can devour, it can hunt, it can do its work. And so the gospel of Jesus Christ will do its work when we let the gospel of Jesus Christ out of the cage. So trust in the power that's there. And I think this will make us better witnesses. We don't have to lie. If we still have doubts, we don't have to pretend we don't. When there's still sin, we don't have to pretend it's not there. We don't have to convince ourselves that I'm good enough and smart enough and now, doggone it, people will like me and I'll be able to lead them to Jesus. It doesn't need any of those things. It needs us to open the cage and speak the truth. And it has power. And to be sure, it has power to save and change anybody. In fact, we know this because look at verse 7 again. Look at what the angel says. He says, go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now, that's a weird way for the angel to say things. Because Peter was a disciple. Like, he was the most prominent of the disciples. He was already part of the the set of disciples. So here they are in the tomb, and the angel says, go tell his disciples and Peter that he wants to meet up with them in Galilee. So why would the angel say it that way? Why is Peter singled out when he's already part of that set? You know, that would be like me saying, you know, go tell Isabel and tell my kids. But she is one of my kids. She's part of that set. I wouldn't need to say that. So, so why single out Peter? But remember what Peter just did. And the last time we saw Peter, he's warming himself by a fire, and a little servant girl comes out, and she starts saying, aren't you one of his followers? Didn't I see you with him? And Peter swears an oath, and he says, I don't know that guy. I've never been with him. I don't know who he is. Jesus had predicted he would do that. Jesus had said that he would betray him before the rooster crows, and so so it was already hanging out there. He thought that was coming, but he did it. And he fell, and when he sinned, his eyes make contact with Jesus, and it's like at that moment he recognizes what a failure he is. So Peter completely fails. He fails in a big way. He denies Christ. And now the angel says to Mary Magdalene, I want you to go tell the disciples and Peter that Jesus wants to meet up in Galilee. So Mary runs and tells the disciples and says, hey, listen, Jesus wants to meet with all the disciples in Galilee, so let's go there. And Peter, fishing from his boat, he hears that and he thinks, well, that can't mean me. And did you see what I did? 
When Jesus rose from the dead, he told us he was going to do that. I should have seen it coming. I should have been faithful, but I wasn't faithful. I denied him. I was the guy who was flashing my sword, and I'm ready to fight and say, Jesus, I'll never deny you. But a little servant girl comes out, and I deny Jesus in front of that servant girl. I've fallen. I've sinned. I, I am not worthy to be called a follower of Christ. I'm not worthy to be one of his disciples. And Mary says, no. The angel said, tell the disciples, and especially Peter. Like, he mentioned you by name. Me by name? I'm the worst of these guys. So he, he singles me out? Yeah, he, he singled you out for his grace. Does he know what he's talking about? He rose from the dead. He seems to. Um, he seems, seems to know how things work. So here's Peter, who's the worst sinner in the bunch, and he's singled out to receive the grace of Christ. And this is great news. What Jesus just accomplished on the cross was huge. Jesus went and he died to pay for our sins. And he went to pay for all of them, even the really bad ones like Peter committed. And he went to pay for the sins even of people like us. And we come in here on Sundays and we have our resume from the week and it's not impressive. We've sinned, we've fallen, we've rebelled against God, maybe even denied him like Peter did. And we feel like, I can't be part of this. You know, I look at these people and it seems like they have it all together because they've got their smiles um, they're singing these songs, and I look around, and it looks like some of them mean it. And how do I mean it? I, I hear this stuff about Christianity and following Jesus and being on a mission for him and being part of this community. And how could I be part of this community because I've fallen so badly? Well, you're being singled out for his grace. I know when my kids fall, when my kids sin, they get more attention from me, not less. I mean, there's discipline, but there's also an extra love and acceptance and extra time. And hey, I got to spend some time with this kid. I got to do this with this one because this one's fallen and this one seems distant. And so if you're coming in and you say, I'm farther from God than anybody else in this room, the good news is that he may be singling you out more than anyone else in this room to receive his forgiveness and grace today. What he accomplished on the cross was enough to pay the price for all sins, even Peter's, even ours, and even Mary Magdalene's. Look at verse 9. It says, now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. So this lady, Mary, was changed powerfully by Jesus Christ. And we talk about Mary Magdalene, there's some legend that says that she was a prostitute. I don't know where the Bible teaches that. I don't think it does teach that. Um, but it does teach that she had a past. It teaches that something was dark about Mary. Um, being possessed by seven demons isn't something that, that I think normally just happens to you. It's not like catching a cold where you wake up with demons. It's, it, you open yourself up to that. There's, there's some sin. There's some darkness. And so this is a lady who had a past. She had the sin. She had the darkness. And here she is at the garden tomb, and she's the first witness of the resurrection of Jesus. She's the first to be able to believe that he rose from the dead, she receives Jesus' grace in a way where she's singled out for it too. It's interesting that Mark right here mentions the fact that Jesus had cast seven demons out of her. It's interesting that Mark mentions that in the garden because if you remember the place where demons started having influence in the story of the Bible, it was in that first garden. Adam and Eve are in the garden, and the, the serpent, Satan, the prince of all the demons, comes up to Eve to tempt her, and he offers her the fruit, and she is deceived. She believes a lie. She eats, and as a result of that, and her husband eating, then sin comes into the world. God's wrath comes into the world. Everything's broken. A curse comes into the world, and demons start having some free reign over the place. 
So in that first garden, you have a woman, you have a demon, you have temptation, and you have death. Now here you are on Resurrection Sunday, and again, you've got a woman in the garden, but there is not a serpent anywhere to be seen. Seven demons have been cast out of this woman. They're gone. And right here, it's not the place where death begins like in Genesis. This is the place where new life begins. So the first witness of that everlasting death that was going to come on humanity was a woman in a garden who became a sinner. And now the first witness of everlasting life was a sinner in a garden who became a woman again. What Jesus is showing here by by appearing first to Mary Magdalene is that the whole curse is being reversed. It's the beginning of the undoing of everything that was done in Genesis. That Satan has defeated. Sin has had a death blow dealt to it. All of creation that's cursed and broken and creaking all over the place, there's this promise that now there's going to be new life. It's the untelling of this story that was told, and it's the, the story of all these things that were sad that are beginning to become untrue. So Jesus appears first to Mary, and the fact that he appears first to her shows what he's doing in history, but it also shows us the the power and the effect of the grace of God in someone's life. I mean, the fact that Mary was the one who was singled out for the grace of Jesus just shows that Jesus has the power to change anybody. And it says that these demons were driven out of her. Throughout the the New Testament, and I'll admit I'm pretty weak on demonology and how the whole thing works, but I don't see people who are possessed with demons ever tracking down Jesus because they want him. In fact, I see Jesus coming into places, and when he shows up, the demons are crying out, what do you have to do with us? You're here to torment us before our time? Get out of here. They want nothing to do with him. And so people who are truly possessed, it seems like they're the people who are as far as you could possibly imagine from a relationship with Jesus Christ. But Jesus is the one who conquered the grave. So seven demons, they're no match for Christ. He drove them out of this woman with a strong arm and completely changed her life. And this should give us some hope in the power of grace. And we've all got those people out there in our lives that we think that person would never believe. That person could never be saved. That person could never be forgiven because it seems like their heart is too hard. You know, anytime I talk to them about Christ, they reject it. They mock me. They laugh at me. If they're possessed with seven demons, Jesus has the power to change their life. So don't give up in your prayers for people. Don't give up in your witness to people because he does have real power that can really change people. And I saw this in my dad, who was a guy who I thought was probably as far as you could get from God, who was hardened to the gospel. And he was a guy that when I spoke the gospel to him, he rejected it and rejected it with fervor. But then on his deathbed in the hospital, having been diagnosed with cancer that was running really quickly, I saw him soft for the first time in my life. I saw him receptive to the gospel, and we talked about it, and he believed. So I I watched Jesus transform this person in his last hours into someone who believed in him. If he can do it with Mary Magdalene, he can do it with that person in your life that you think could never believe. So think of that person. Picture that person. Who is it that's out there that you want to know Jesus, but they're so hard? They're so, it seems, resilient to the gospel. It's almost like they're immune to its power, Nobody's immune to its power. Even a woman with seven seven demons isn't. So Jesus goes and he casts out these demons, shows us the power of his grace, but it also shows us that his grace has an effect because this woman was different from the time that she came to know Jesus. This is important for us because we believe that the way that we are saved, the way that we're forgiven, is not by anything that we do. 
There's not a single thing that we do that can earn God's acceptance and his approval. When we recognize how sinful we are, when we recognize how much we've broken his law, we don't say, okay, I'm going to undo that whole thing by doing some stuff now. Now I'm going to become religious. Now I'm going to join a church. Now I'm going to take communion. Now I'm going to get baptized. Now I'm going to obey the law. I'm going to do all these things, and then I'll be a good person that God will accept. That's not how it works. The Bible says, by grace you're saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It's the gift of God, not of works, so that nobody can boast. The way that we are saved, the way that we're forgiven, is by realizing how far we've fallen short, and then trusting that Jesus came to us, trusting that he pursued us, trusting that he died for us on the cross, and we don't do any works at all to merit God's acceptance. We just receive the free gift of the cross, and it's ours. Our sins are forgiven. But when that happens, it changes us. In fact, with Mary, you see her wherever you see Jesus in these passion narratives. Jesus is there being crucified on the cross, and Mary is there. Jesus is buried, and she sees where he's buried. She's right there. Jesus rises again. She's the first one to the tomb. She's the first one to see Jesus. When grace comes in and changes you, it changes you. It makes you a different person. It makes you someone who loves Jesus. And so what so often we'll do is we experience free grace and we realize there's nothing I can do to earn God's favor, but he gave it to me freely. So we think, well, that kind of gives me this free pass to just sin it up and do whatever I want. I mean, now I can sin all I want because I've been totally freed by Jesus and my works aren't what earned my acceptance before God. But if that's your view of grace, you're missing something huge. When we believe in the grace of a God who would pursue us, would give his son for us, would die for us, would be buried, would rise again, when we believe in that power, that makes us different people. And so for us to say, because of grace, now I sin, is totally missing what grace is. It's totally missing what freedom is. Christian freedom is not the freedom to sin, it's the freedom from sin. Christian freedom is not the ability to go out and get drunk now because Jesus forgives our sins. Christian freedom is the freedom from drunkenness because we don't need that. We have joy in Christ now. And when we believe in Jesus, it doesn't make us perfect right away. It doesn't change everything in our lives, but it doesn't give us a ticket to sin. It gives us a ticket away from it. It's so important because sometimes it's saying that I'm free enough to sin is like saying I'm free enough to go to jail. Well, that's not freedom anymore. It's not true Christian freedom. It's, it's like a ham sandwich without the ham. I mean, it's not a ham sandwich anymore. And real Christian freedom should free us. It should free us from the power of Satan, sin, and death. We should have triumph over some of those things. We should see our lives change. And we should recognize that when we fall, yeah, there's forgiveness for us every step of the way. But really believing in grace is a transformative thing. It makes us different people. And honestly, if you've believed in this for 20 years and you're the exact same person you were 20 years ago, you haven't believed it because it changes you. This Mary, she had her seven demons, but when Jesus cast them out, she didn't act like she had seven demons anymore. She was with him. She was following him. She was new. And the gospel, if we believe it, should be increasingly doing the same thing for us. It should be increasingly making us new. And the promise of scripture is that no heart is too hard, no life is too far, no person is so distant from Jesus that they can't receive this free gift. So let's bow our heads and close our eyes, please. You know, Christians, it's good when we look in the Word of God to not just look at it like we look at our face in the mirror and, and don't do anything about it. When we see the Word of God and we see what it calls us to be, it should lead us to repent. So if there are ways that we've made peace with something that we know to be sin, 
let's recognize that that's not the work of grace in our heart. That's ourselves going back and becoming enslaved again. So let's turn from that. Let's turn from our sin. Let's turn from our unbelief. Let's turn from those addictions. Turn from those things that we've made peace with because we don't need to do anything to earn God's favor. Turn from all those things that are wrong. Trust in Christ for his forgiveness and allow him to free us from those things. Let's break the peace that we've made with sin and declare war on it in confidence that the war will be one where we triumph because Jesus triumphed on our behalf. So now as Christians, it would be a good time for us to confess those things that we've said are okay in our lives. The ways that we've said that we love Jesus, that we follow Jesus, that we trust Jesus, but then we live almost like we think he's a moron because we don't follow his word. Now if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, the message of this empty tomb is the greatest message you will ever hear. And, and the message on the one hand says that, yes, you're as bad as you might think you are. The Bible says there is no one righteous, not even one. And when Jesus died on the cross, he was absorbing the anger and the wrath and the punishment from God that should have been ours. So our sin, the ways that we've fallen short, the ways that we've broken the commandment, that is a, commandments, those are a big deal. God is not pleased with us, but he loves us. And so the good news is that even though our sins were as scarlet, even though we had fallen so far short, even though we were completely broken, Jesus came to restore us. Jesus came and he went after us. And even though when he came into our lives at first, many of us cried out like demons, what do you have to do with us? Get out of here. Don't torment us. Jesus went after us. He died for us on the cross. He absorbed the wrath that should have been ours. He was buried and he rose again. So that if we'll turn from our unbelief, we'll turn from our sin, we'll turn from those other things that were driving us and trust in Jesus Christ, then we won't perish, but we'll have everlasting life. This is good news, and it's a good offer. It's an offer to anyone who senses that you're far from God, that you can turn to the cross and be forgiven. That you can trust in Jesus and have your sins washed away. You can cry out to him in whatever words you want and say, God, I know how sinful I am. I know how broken I am. So I'm turning from my sin and my unbelief. And Jesus, I trust in you and your cross and you alone for forgiveness and for life. Jesus, forgive me and change me. And he promises if those aren't just words you're praying in some religious ritual you're going through, but if that's really a changing of the orientation of your heart, where you're turning from, from your dri drivenness by your sins and your idols and your religion, and you're turning to Jesus and Jesus alone, he promises forgiveness and life and peace. Now, Christians, we've been set free, so let's not be enslaved again. Let's be people who, when they look at our lives, they see the same thing that they saw in Mary Magdalene, that, that yeah, there's a past, yeah, there's sin, but wherever Jesus goes, they go. They're on his mission. They're with him. They're obeying him. They're following him. Let them see Christians who are, who've been changed by the gospel. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the cross. We thank you for that grave, and we thank you that it's empty. Jesus, we thank you that you conquered Satan and sin and death. You conquered our enemies. Uh, Lord, we were hopeless. We were helpless. We were defenseless. But you stepped in and saved us. And so, Jesus, we worship you. And, and Lord, I pray that we would, would worship you in all those parts of our hearts that still don't believe and still don't want to worship. Lord, help us to believe your gospel in every area of our lives. And, Lord, allow that to make us different people. Lord, allow that to make us people who, when we sin, we feel it, 
and we confess and we turn from it and declare war on that sin. Allow it to make us different people. Lord, allow the power that, that rose you from the dead to work in our hearts too. In all the ways that we love our death and we love the little tombs that we stay in, I just pray that you would free us from all of those. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.